So we just heard from three grace attenders who have been through some pretty awful circumstances. Thanks to God, they've all found their way through them, but uh, didn't change the fact that what they faced was really, really hard. Um, I said in the video that I would give you the scripture passages that they mentioned, so if you're curious, here's what they are. Isaiah 41, 10, you can look that up later. Uh, Philippians 4, 6 through 7, and Jeremiah 29, 11. So feel free to, to look those up on, on a later day. Um, today, we are gonna talk about the posture uh, that we as Christ followers should take or must take in our own lives when things like that happen, when the dream dies, when we hit a wall, when, when things fall apart. But before we get into it, I want to acknowledge right now that there is another Grace family who is going through their own version of this, and it is one of the most unspeakably awful circumstances imaginable. So I want us to take a moment and just uh, think about and pray for them. Pat and Keisha Kelly lost their high school-aged sons, Liam and Reese, in a tragic plane crash last weekend. As you can imagine, they are facing an unbelievable amount of grief right now and confusion and all of the, all of the emotions. Uh, we had their memorial service here on, on, uh, on Friday. So before we continue, let's just take a moment and pray for the Kellys. Well, Father God, we are talking about this topic at a, at a really unique time, having just um, memorialized the life of Liam and Reese. Father, we lift up the Kellys to you now. And most of all, we ask for your mercy. We ask that you would allow them to grieve in a way that, that draws them closer to you. I pray, Father, that you would comfort them, uh, that you would wrap your arms around them and bring around them a community that loves and supports them, not just for this week or next week, but for months and years to come. Father, I pray for your mercy on that family. And I pray that you'll continue to show them uh, what it means to trust in you as you guide them into the future. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's turn to God's word and see what scripture has to say to us today about this topic. Uh, we're going to turn to Ephesians 6, chapter, starting in, uh, in uh, verse 10. Um, now, Ephesians, as we've talked about, is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote um, to the church in Ephesus, but also to some surrounding churches in the area. And throughout the letter, Paul's painting the picture of, of how Christ followers should live. Uh, how should we behave in the midst of this broken world? Um, and at this point in the letter, he's almost done with the letter, and he's already, he just finished the household code that we talked about last week, and then he begins this as, the, as sort of the beginning of the conclusion of his letter. He says this, chapter 6, verse 10, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor, so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. 
In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on all occasions, on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Okay, now, in the ancient Roman Empire, when Paul wrote this, life was tough. Life was really hard, just as it is today. But back then, I mean, I'd argue it was really, really hard. For example, persecution against Christians was starting to intensify in Ephesus. Uh, But that's on top of things like plague and infant mortality and war that were just a commonplace part of life back then. Uh, And that was in a world that was already overwhelmed by violence and hatred and injustice at the hands of evil people. Not to mention the fact Paul wrote this while he was imprisoned unjustly for his faith, right? So this was a rough time uh, to be living. And yet, in the midst of all of this brokenness, In the midst of all these evil people doing terrible things to one another, Paul says that Christians are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Interesting. Who are we fighting against then? Well, according to Paul, the devil, unseen rulers and authorities, uh, mighty powers and evil spirits. How does that strike you? Just take a second. How, how does that actually strike you? Because I, I know from my experience that there are kind of two extremes that we tend to go to when we start talking about these, these sort of spiritual forces. Um, on one hand, some people, they think of it as just kind of goofy, right? Like they, they think about the devil as this like horned guy with goat legs and a, and a pitchfork and he's all red, like that's the devil. It's just kind of superstitious and weird and we don't really talk about it, right? That's some, some people and it's okay. You pro- some of you probably feel that way. On the other side of the spectrum though, there are those who they want to figure out every detail possible about how, the, how demons work. How, ex- how many demons are there in the world and what exact words, what's the code that you can say to have power over them? And, and they tend to think of every, everything in their life, every disease, every, every open parking spot, every shortfall, everything that happens is because of this unseen spiritual warfare, right? Every single thing, there's a demon under every rock. So you've got these two extremes when you get into talking about this kind of spiritual warfare. And I get it. So here's the deal. We're not going to go super deep into this conversation today. Maybe we will. Maybe someday we'll have a sermon series all about spiritual warfare. I'm sure you'd be curious. I'd be curious to to dig into that even more. But, but, But I will say this today. The truth about spiritual warfare is likely not at either of these extremes. Okay? First of all, it is real. Spiritual warfare is real, and we do have an enemy, an enemy who wants to take us out. But what that enemy is and how he operates in our world is, frankly, it's far more mysterious than we often want to admit. And the Bible does not spell it all out for us as much as we might like to to make it try to. It doesn't. Uh, What we see, uh, ultimately, when you look throughout Scripture, is exactly what Paul describes here. You see a whole range of evil forces who are working to undermine the purposes of God. For example, when you look in the Old Testament, what you see is what Paul calls rulers and authorities, okay? These are spiritual beings that in the Old Testament author's eyes were pulling the strings of entire ancient nations. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, yeah, they were being ruled by these spiritual beings. Um, They also kind of 
painted the picture of, of these little G gods who spread evil systems into the world. Mighty powers, in other words, who feed injustice and, and corruption and violence and greed. And, and, you know, you had gods like Mammon in Greek that were, they represented greed and, and uh, all of that. So there were these spiritual beings that ran these kind of different systems. They would poison humanity against God's intentions. Even though, of course, it's the humans who actually choose to obey them, that was their purpose, was to knock us off track. Well, then you come to the New Testament, and you look in the Gospels, and what you see is Jesus freeing people from what Paul calls evil spirits, uh, these unclean, spiritually unclean influences who hold people captive to disease or disability or emotional anguish. But again, their purpose is to keep us away, keep people away from the purposes of God. But then you look throughout the entire scripture, and if you look for this one thread, you will find one, one spiritual being who is, is kind of the primary one who is directly opposed to the purposes of God, the one who's coordinating these, darks, dark, these uh, dark rulers and spirits and powers. This is the one that we call Satan or the devil. Except, interestingly, you may not know this, those two words are not actually proper names at all. They're, they're uh, titles, they're descriptors. In Hebrew, Satan means the adversary, the accuser. That's what, that's what Satan means, it's the accuser. Diabolos in Greek means the slanderer. It's a title. In other words, the evil one, the evil one, he accomplishes his purposes not through violence, uh, not through power, but through lies and deception and, and slander. The evil one uh, convinces us to turn this world against God's intentions. God wants to heal the brokenness of this world, and the evil one, he wants to break it further, right? So he uses all of these different, different powers to do this. And th here's why this is relevant to today's topic. When we are in Christ, first of all, the evil one has no power over us, okay? Let me just state that out here outright. He has no power over us. He can't, he can't affect us. He can't influence us unless we let him. So he has no power over us implicitly. He's just a, a fly buzzing around, whispering uh, lies in our ears. But, but when the dream dies, when uh, the bottom falls out, when we are in a crisis in our life, that we can't see our way through, well, guess who's waiting to take advantage of that? The slanderer. The slanderer is right there, ready to, to strike us down with doubt, with, with shame, with confusion. The adversary is there looking to entangle us in, in broken worldly systems of greed and hatred and injustice. He knows that Christ is victorious. Ultimately, Christ is victorious. The battle is won, but he still wants us out of the fight. He wants us to give up. He, he, he knows that in the middle of our worst moments, we are very, very vulnerable to his schemes. In verse 16, Paul refers to the fiery arrows of the devil, which I find interesting. If you know anything about military history, you know that in ancient warfare, flaming arrows were actually not as damaging as normal ones, okay? They, they didn't do nearly as much damage. They didn't fly as far. They weren't as powerful. So why did everyone use them all the time? Well, why'd they use them? It was because they were terrifying. 
Flaming arrows were terrifying. Imagine, you know, you're, you're going to battle and all of a sudden all these missiles on fire start landing all around you. Everything starts catching on fire. Horses are bucking and people are screaming and everything's on fire. It's chaos. It's terrifying. And if you could get the enemy army to flee, then you, you won the battle. You didn't even have to raise your sword, right? So fear is the purpose of fiery arrows. Flaming arrows don't cause damage. They cause terror, which is why the evil one shoots them at us especially when we're vulnerable, because he wants us cowering in fear. He wants us to retreat anything which would turn us away from trusting God and fighting back. That's why, this is why, when, when our life hits the wall, we so often avoid getting help because, because we're ashamed of what, what we've done or what's happened to us, or, or we self-medicate right, with drugs or, or alcohol or pornography to, to numb the pain. It's why we so, get, so often get overwhelmed by fear and we, we don't take any action to make things better. It's why we start to doubt God, questioning his goodness instead of turning to him for help. All of that happens because we start to give in to this fear coming from the evil one who wants to knock us off track. In our worst moments, our worst moments, we so often buy the lies and we put this powerless accuser in charge. So what do we do about that? How are we supposed to react to the challenges of this life? How are we supposed to, to respond when life hits the wall? Look, until, new until the new creation is fully here, we are not going to live lives free of pain or tragedy or grief or hardship. We are either in a crisis now or we are going to be, that's the human condition, right? It's what we're all going to experience. So what do we do in the meantime, knowing that, that we have such a treacherous enemy who wants to use the brokenness of this world to knock us off track? Well, according to Paul in verse 10, he says, we need to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And to do that, we have to put on the armor of God so that we can stand firm against the strategies of the devil. Or more literally, if I were to, to say that literally, it would be to stand against the crafty schemes of the slanderer. The crafty schemes of the slanderer. According to Paul, the armor of God will protect us from them. So let's talk about this armor of God. What is Paul talking about here? Well, first of all, it's, it's helpful to kind of get a mental image of perhaps what Paul was, was imagining at the time. Um, yeah, I think it's helpful to get a picture of a Roman legionary, and that's kind of what a standard Roman legionary in the height of the Roman Empire looked like. That's the, the sort of the equipment that they had, the shield, the, the, the sword, all of that. Now, by this point in the uh, history of Rome, the Roman Empire was at its peak all over Ephesus, all over the ancient world. People would have seen Roman soldiers like that walking around. It was a normal sight. And like I mentioned, Paul was writing this from prison. So I imagine he's sitting there looking up at somebody wearing armor with a shield or whatever. And he's, he's using that as part of his, his mental image. But this is interesting. Paul wasn't the one who came up with this metaphor. Paul didn't actually invent the armor of God at all. It wasn't his. Do you know where he got it from? He got it from Isaiah. He got it from the Old Testament. Let me, let me actually read you this. This is the passage in, in Isaiah 59 that Paul got this whole concept from. The Lord looked and was displeased to find note there was no justice. 
He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm and his justice sustained him. He put on righteousness as his body armor and he placed the helmet of salvation on his head. He clothed himself with a robe of vengeance and he wrapped himself in a cloak of divine passion. He will repay his enemies for their evil deeds. His fury will fall on his foes. He will pay them back even to the ends of the earth. So for Isaiah, the ancient prophet writing hundreds and hundreds of years before Paul, uh, the armor of God was his way of describing Yahweh, God, bringing his intentions to fruition, right? An end to injustice, an end to oppression, this broken world made right. That's what he's fighting for. Now, of course, it's easy when you hear that passage, it's easy to hear words like God's fury will fall on his foes and picture God blasting a bunch of evil people, right? That's what we think of. But again, as Paul said, our battle is not against flesh and blood enemies. God is at war against the evil one, the slanderer who's working furiously to disrupt the, re the restoration of this broken creation. God's enemy is the accuser who corrupts humanity and enlists us to spread injustice and hatred and greed and oppression for him. God doesn't want to blast us. He wants to rescue us from all of that. He wants to, to bring us out of that constant drive to, to spread you know, injustice and sin and corruption and death. He wants to rescue us. That's why the father sent his son to die to break us free. God, from the very beginning, has been on a rescue mission to save humanity. So to do that, as Isaiah says, God dresses for battle. He puts on his, his body armor of righteousness. Righteousness just means God's justice, his intentions. He puts on the helmet of salvation, the power to rescue and deliver. That's what he wears, and then he goes to war wrapped in a cloak of divine passion, as Isaiah says. I think that's so powerful. Nothing is going to stop Yahweh from bringing his children home and healing this broken world. Nothing will stop him. So now I want you to get that mental image in your mind. The mental image of God dressing for battle, preparing to battle against evil. Because that image along with probably the Roman soldiers that Paul was looking at, but that image of God dressing himself was what Paul had in mind when he was quoting Isaiah and building out this metaphor. We, according to Paul, are fighting against the crafty schemes of the evil one. We are fighting against the brokenness of our world, right? Especially when our life hits the wall. As I've already said, when that happens, we are at war. We are at war. Verse 13, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in this time of evil. Put on every piece of God's armor. Now, for a long time, for a very long time in my life, I always thought that, that Paul was saying here, put on godly armor. Put on godly armor. Put on some sort of metaphorical armor which represents some spiritual ideas. It's, it's some kind of thought experiment for Paul, right? But no, that's not what he's saying at all. No, he's saying, put on God's armor. Put on the actual armor that God wears. That's now available to us. Because of the sacrifice of our Savior, right? We are now freed from our, our shackles to sin. 
We're not slaves to the evil one anymore. We can now join God's battle to bring life and justice and peace and healing to this broken world. But now we are wearing God's armor to do it. Just imagine this for a moment. Imagine God is talking directly to you. Okay, God is looking you in the eyes and he's saying this, look, look, you are going through an awful time right now. I know you are in this broken world. I get it. Or you know what? You've got some hard days coming. You're going to hit the wall. Your dreams will fall apart. And when that happens, the slanderer, our enemy is going to throw everything he's got at you. He wants you to be afraid. He wants you to give up. He wants you to walk away. So here, here, take my body armor. Put this on. Put this on. This is my righteousness. You wear this and what I intend will come to pass. The evil one's best strategy is, his best strategy is to lie to you, to tell you that you're worthless, to tell you that you're alone. So here, 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 this is my belt of truth. Put that on. You don't have to believe his lies anymore. You're my child. Here, you know what? Here, put these on your feet. Put these on your feet. Remember how the prophet Isaiah said, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news? The good news of peace and salvation, the news that the God of Israel reigns? Well, now he's talking about your feet. It's your good news to share. Tell the world the battle is won. Here, 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 take this. Our enemy's gonna shoot flaming arrows at you. He wants you terrified. Take my shield. Take it. This is the shield of faith, of trust in me. With this protecting you, you can be confident and brave that his arrows aren't even gonna touch you. Wear this. This is my helmet of salvation. Remember, my salvation is already accomplished through Jesus. This is a reminder that you have been delivered. But my child, I don't just want you protected. No, it's time to go on the offense. This is the sword of my spirit. Take it. Take it. I have put my spirit in you, which means that you have my power at your disposal. You have my word in your mouth now. You can strike down evil wherever you find it. You can heal injustice and oppression in my name and it will bow to you. And remember, when you pray, you're now praying with my spirit. So yeah, you're gonna face hardship. Your life will not look the way that you think it will. But you are wearing my armor now and you have nothing to fear. After the battle, after the battle, you will be standing firm. Can you imagine that? Because I believe that's what Paul wants us to imagine. God is giving us his armor to wear. I think that's powerful. I think that is moving to me. It, 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 it gives me strength to even consider it. it. Takes this passage to a whole new level, in my opinion. We're wearing God's armor. But what does that look like? Like practically in, in, our, in our life, like how do we actually put this into practice? The hard thing here is that, is that when we talk about hitting the wall, it could mean a million different things, right? It could be everything from, from the loss of a loved one to, to a physical condition, a disease, to, to just not even having enough work during the pandemic. It could be, it could be all, any one of those kinds of things. And not everybody, uh, not every problem hits every person the same way. So, so here's what I, I wrestled with as I was working on this. 
I thought maybe I could try to give you a bunch of specific advice that comes out of this passage, but no. No, what I wanted to do instead was to give you three simple but deep truths that you can remember. They only have four words each, okay? I want to give you these truths because I believe that if you are going through the valley or if you're going to go through the valley, then as I speak for these next few moments, I believe the Holy Spirit will speak to you and will cause one of these truths or one of these ideas to pop out at you. And when that happens, pay attention, pay attention and and start asking yourself why God would want you to pay attention to that. Okay, so let me talk about these truths. Number one, number one, God is still working. God is still working. Regardless of your circumstance, when you hit the wall, one of the first lies that the slanderer will try to convince you of is that God has abandoned you. It's the same old deception again and again and again, right? It it always hits us. The truth is, though, that the same God who was going to war against oppression in Isaiah is the same God who was was fighting the dark powers in Ephesus, and right now he's the same God battling the brokenness in your world, in my world. Now, we may not see it. It may not be on our timetable, but God is still working, and you can hold on to that. I've talked about this before, but when I was in my mid-20s, I went through a phase where I could not find a job. Okay, I was applying to job after job after job and everybody just kept rejecting me. And you know what? I bought the lies. I bought the lies and I started to shake my fist at God and I started to say, God, why would you do this to me? Why would you take me through all the things you've taken me through only to drop me on my face like this, right? I bought the lies. What I didn't know then was that God was still working. He used that period of unemployment to prepare me to say yes to an invitation to spend time in India. I went to India and there uh, God began to birth in me this idea for, for the nonprofit that I ran for the next six or seven years, which ultimately prepared me and led me to, to go into full-time ministry and, and full-time pastoral ministry and it ultimately led to me being right here, right now. God was still working. I just bought the lies and started to think that he wasn't. What if I had had the shield of faith to protect me from those flaming arrows back then? God is still working. If only I had held up that shield, perhaps I wouldn't have been so afraid. Number two, it's not your power. It is not your power. When it comes to Enduring the challenges of a broken world. One of our biggest temptations will always be to try to muster up the strength within ourselves to power through, right? It's no surprise. Self-reliance is like the American way. But that's why I love the idea of wearing God's armor and not our own. We're not crafting this armor. We're not hammering out the breastplate. We're not making this. It's God's armor. He's loaning it to us. He's given it to us to use. It's a reminder to me that, that the strength that we have in enduring these hardships does not come from within, it comes from him. It's his breastplate we're wearing. It's his helmet on our heads. This is why Paul says that, that we should put on God's armor so that we can stand firm, so that we can resist the enemy. Because it's, it's when we acknowledge our weakness and we allow God to fight with us and for us that we can truly endure. As Paul says it elsewhere, and this is so provocative, I think we slide right past it, but he says this, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ 
may dwell with me. The power of Christ dwells when we are weak. It is not your power that's going to see you through. Finally, number three, you are not alone. You are not alone. Earlier, I showed you a picture of a Roman legionary, right? And what made the Romans so successful in battle uh, was not that they had better equipment than everyone else. They didn't have stronger shields. It was nothing like that. No, they didn't even have stronger soldiers. No, they were powerful because they fought as a unit in ways that had never existed in the ancient world. Their discipline and order was spectacular. When Roman soldiers came under enemy fire, they could instantly lock their shields into what was called the testudo formation. It's, it's uh, Latin for the tortoise. Here's what it looked like. Nothing could get through that. They could march forward while under enemy fire and be completely unscathed. The arrows would bounce right off and then the soldiers would get right back up and they'd keep on moving toward the enemy. A Roman legionary by himself was formidable, yes, but a Roman legion was unstoppable. Now, I know that Paul doesn't explicitly mention us fighting together here, but all of his commands in this passage of Ephesians are plural. They're they're plural, and, and I believe he is talking to us, the church, the body of Christ, all of us as a part of this, because none of us fights alone. Now, I bring this up to remind you that if you are going through the deep waters right now, if you're walking through the valley of bewilderment, if you feel surrounded by forces that you can't control, I want you to remember that you are wearing the armor of God and you are standing shoulder to shoulder with others who are wearing it too. Don't face your crisis alone. Lean on your spiritual family. Lean on us. Depend on your life group. Draw on the strength of those around you. We will remind you of your salvation when you can't remember it. We will wrap you in truth when you're starting to buy the lies. We will shield you with our faith as you work to shield yourself with yours. And we will join our voices to yours in a battle cry of prayer. God is still working. It's not your power. And you are not alone. With God's armor protecting you, you will stand strong.